Hey, Ken, how are you? Hey, Ben, how are you? I'm well. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons, and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Kenneth Jones, a New York City-based playwright, librettist, and lyricist. His 2015 play, Alabama Story, based on the true story of the 1959 banning of a children's book in Montgomery, Alabama, will receive its streaming premiere September 25th through October 4th in a production at the Oak Ridge Playhouse, located in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Visit orplayhouse.com to purchase tickets. Ken, how is your corona treating you? Corona is... uh, (laughs) I am um, talking to you from Queens, New York, and we're about three miles from what was ground zero of the coronavirus here in, in New York City, I'm in Queens, in my office, in my home, and uh, hunkered down trying to be creative. That is fantastic, and it's probably the best you can do right now, so God bless you. Ken, let's have a full disclosure. We are former colleagues. We are. We are both arts writers, arts journalists. You are a playwright. I am not. I also am an alum of the Oak Ridge Playhouse, mm. where your play Alabama Story is going to receive streaming performances coming up soon. It's the streaming premiere of my play. So more on that later. I played Buddy Lehman in Jim Leonard Jr.'s The Diviners. I was Trinculo in The Tempest and Priests 1 and 2 in Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh-huh. So there you have it. <laughs> And Oak Ridge Playhouse is considered one of the great American civic theaters. It's It's been around, what, more than 70 years? Yes, it's the longest-running community theater in the South. Yeah. So uh, very proud and very excited for this serendipitous conversation. I'm really glad to be talking to you today. Let's talk, Ken, about being a playwright and what that even means What attracted you to that title and to even get the courage to say, I am a playwright? It's something I really wanted to do when I was a kid. When I was 16, I thought, wow, I love the theater. My parents took me to the theater and I wanted to be involved somehow. I knew that I wouldn't be an actor. I'm way too, I think, repressed and shy to be an actor. And I thought, well, let me try to be a playwright because I have some facility with language. And I remember talking to my auto parts salesman father and saying, I want to be a playwright. And he said, how are you going to make money at that? And I had no idea how I would make money at that. And I kind of gave him that power and said, okay, uh, of course, I I can't be a playwright. I'm not going to be a playwright. I didn't know how to do that. I was living in Metro Detroit at the time as a kid. I grew up in the Detroit area. And it wasn't exactly a hotbed of new American plays at that point. (laughs) There have been regional theaters that have popped up in in Michigan since then. But I I thought, well, maybe I can sort of have my cake and eat it too, because I also loved being a journalist. And I was a journalism student in high school, and I said, I'm going to be a theater critic when I grow up. And I'm going to be the theater critic at the Detroit News, which is the newspaper that we took. 
And I got a journalism degree, and I went to plays all the time, and I wrote for school newspapers. And 10 years after I graduated from college, I became the theater critic at the Detroit News. It just, it so happened that I was freelancing for a bunch of papers in the Detroit area, and I just stumbled into this job because the, the critic quit and they didn't replace the critic and they used me as the freelancer. So I was covering all these shows and really absorbing the rules of drama, right? Assessing what a play is or what a play is trying to be and what it wants to be and how, how well it succeeds at, at doing that. I didn't know, but I was really building, building muscle to be a dramatist. Arts coverage is getting cut all over the world today, but you know, it was no different 20 years ago. And when they started cutting arts coverage, I moved to New York City and I thought, I'm going to be a playwright. I'm going to really try to um, focus on what my earlier dream was. Um, I had very much kept journalism and playwriting separate. I believe in objectivity. I don't believe in writing a play and reviewing a theater and saying, hey, will you look at my play? I moved to New York and I got into this terrific workshop called the BMI Workshop. It's the BMI uh, Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop. And I was a lyricist and a librettist and met all kinds of fantastic people because I did love writing musicals as well. And musical theater writing is the same as playwriting. It's largely the same rules. You're telling a story. You're, you have major characters who want, who want things, you know. When I moved to New York, I also had a day job, which was working for a, a theater magazine. And that's where you and I met. Um, and that's how I sort of paid my dues. I wrote a couple of musicals over those years um, with collaborators. And then I stumbled on this story that I thought would be a musical or maybe sort of a contemporary opera almost. And it was a story about a librarian in Alabama who was persecuted by conservative politicians for protecting books. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a, I think this is a musical. And that's how uh, Alabama Story really began. It was, I haven't, you know, I don't say it a lot, but Alabama Story is my first play. I had written a couple of musicals prior to that, but in 2013, I had a workshop of Alabama Story. Have you seen David Mamet's masterclass on dramatic writing? I have not seen it, no. Have you seen the trailer for it? I have seen it, yes. Mamet's there coming at you, right? Like he always does. There's a pencil, right? And a, and a piece of paper. And I'm going to write some dialogue. And it's going to take place in one place and two chairs. And that's all I need, right? That's his. That's sort of his pitch for dramatic writing. Theater, particularly theater, theater, not musical theater, is dialogue-based, of course. And dialogue-heavy is an understatement. I would think, as a playwright, you must start with some piece of dialogue. Is that, in fact, how you started with Alabama's story? Was there an initial scene that you thought, let me see where this goes and let me see what I can make of it? Yes, there was a, a sort of an inciting scene that jumped out at me at first, but really the first thing before any of that, before any dialogue, was that I came across two profoundly interesting and contrasting characters. So there was a lady librarian who was the state librarian of Alabama in 1959, and she wanted to protect a children's book. There was a segregationist conservative state senator who wanted that book literally burned. Librarian's name was Emily Reed. I read her obituary in the New York Times, and I thought, wow, this is a fantastic character. I mean, not only is there a saber-rattling Southern politician 
he wants to burn a children's book. And, you know, the children's book was about a black bunny rabbit that wants to marry a white bunny rabbit. Uh, but that was the conflict, right? So that interested me. In some of the <laughs> reports that I read about them, there were library hearings about funding. There were library funding meetings in which he grilled her in front of his mm -hmm. colleagues and her colleagues, essentially saying, who are you? None of that is on the record. There was no public record of that. So I thought, well, what, what is that? What is that courtroom scene? Not literally a courtroom scene, but, you know, we all love those pot boilers like 12 Angry Men and Inherit the Wind. And I thought, wow, I could, that, that's, that's interesting to me. So that's the first scene I really wrote. It was between Emily Reed and Senator Higgins, I call him. That's not his real name in real life. Um, and I, I wanted them to talk and fight and argue mm. Mm -hmm. about books and about where people come from. You know, she's very much an outsider. She's from Indiana. And as we know, people in the Deep South don't like people from other states to tell them what to do. So that, you know, that was all there. That was all embedded in there. And dialogue-wise, I was able to swipe things from a reporting from the era, which was incredibly juicy. It was bigger than life. That dialogue, you know, I was helped by history and that, that some of that was there. He said this book ought to be burned. He conjured communism. He said they, uh, the library board won't get a cent, an extra cent out of me if they don't do what I want. There's only room for one viewpoint in the South. You know, and she sat there very primly and said, I believe that the free flow of information is the best means to solve the problems of the South, the nation, and the world. I mean, that's a piece of dialogue I wish I had written, but she said it. It's very much the sort of tenets of librarianship. I didn't know it when I was reading it. But like that is a profound American statement, right? The free flow of information. And now we see, see some of the echoes of that happening today. But that, that just seemed wholly American to me and very different from what he was saying. My late father, Charles E. Reed, was a doctor. He was chief physician at Culver Military Academy in Indiana. We moved there from North Carolina when I was a baby. Physicians, at least in those days, were, were more transient, I think. He once told me that doctors go where they are needed. I suppose librarians are the same way. I was needed many places, Hawaii even, I spent two years there before I returned to the mainland to be with my mother, who had become ill. At any rate, in Indiana, the Culver faculty and our family friends were, were more of a Southern than a Midwestern culture. I'm not unfriendly to the problems of the South. I think the fact that I chose to accept library positions in the South should indicate that I was aware of the patterns I would have to live by. I've never made any effort to be a crusader in changing these patterns. Like a good doctor, who does not judge the reason for an illness, but just treats it, a librarian must make books available. I believe that the free flow of information is the best means to work out problems facing the South, the nation, and the world. Librarians have a difficult time trying to please everyone. Like doctors, I suppose. Nobody likes to take medicine, but it seems to me that you want it prescribed by the most informed individuals. <laughs> doctors and librarians. 
You know, I had not made that connection before. You have Black Lives Matter in this play. You have Nevertheless, She Persisted. You have Old South Legacy. You have Free Speech. Unfortunately, all those problems have been solved now. Of course, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I didn't, I, you know, I really thought I was writing a juicy entertainment that, w- that mixed my favorite kinds of plays. Courtroom drama, romance, memory play, political thriller, workplace potboiler. You know, I, I was writing this mashup of all these things that I really liked. And I did not know that the echoes would reverberate so loudly today. You know, a, a woman being bullied by a politician, it's awful, but it's, it's, it, it pops today like it didn't pop in 2015 when this play had its world premiere at Pioneer Theater Company in Utah. The illustrator of the book, Garth Williams, is your de facto narrator for the play. That's right. Yeah. There's a, an article from the Times from 1959 that you share on your website, bykennethjones.com. And I'm going to read some of this quote. He's defending the book of a black rabbit and a white rabbit in a wedding together. He says, I was only aware that a white horse next to a black horse looks very picturesque. And my rabbits were inspired by early Chinese paintings of black and white horses in misty landscapes. So we think at that point that he's going to take a bit of a Flannery O'Connor stance uh, when (laughs) she was famously asked, why was the Misfits hat black? And she was like, most countrymen in Georgia wore black hats, right? But then he comes in with the next paragraph. Mr. Williams said his story about the rabbits, quote, was not written for adults who will not understand it because it is only about a soft furry love and has no hidden messages of hate. So they're undercutting this innocence. We see that Williams, in fact, knows exactly what's going on. Mm. Yeah, he never, you know, he never publicly said that he had a political motive. Today, it's hard to read that book. It's called The Rabbit's Wedding, still in print today. It's hard to read that and not see the messages when a white rabbit and a black rabbit are drinking from the same babbling brook, you know? I mean, this is a drinking fountain metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) For sure. But he never said publicly what it was. And again, Ben, there was a chance for me to steal some of what he said. I mean, I do, I build on what he says in that article, which, and I think I say, it was never meant to rouse the sleeping giants of hate. And every time I see that in a theater, people, you know, the audience kind of, the audience leans into it. And sees that that um, hatred always finds its own rationale. So this senator and these politicians who were so terrified of this book, all they did was inflate the book's sales. I mean, they brought attention to it. So, so you know, and one of the goals there, of course, with Garth Williams was to really make this play theatrical. I didn't want to just do a docudrama. I didn't want to just do a courtroom drama. So Act Two opens with him saying pretty much what you're referencing, you know, he thinks a black horse next to a white horse is more picturesque. And it's, it's, it's this long, funny monologue and says, if you're in Alabama and you're interested in checking out the rabbit's wedding, you'll find it on the reserve shelf next to 59 other books on the topics of abortion and communism. It was put on a reserve shelf to protect it, that a bunny rabbit book would be deemed controversial is, is um, still amazing to me. And, and of course, librarians today are still fighting the good fight protecting books and other materials that are viewed by parents and community members as injurious. Excuse me, Ms. Reed. 
Senator Higgins, I did not expect to see you until the next library budget meeting, which is coming up very soon now. This is a nice office. A nice big office. Nice to have a nice big office. It was a good idea for the library service to be moved to this great building, the State Archive Building, a stone's throw from the Capitol. I can see you from out my window. Keep my eye on you. You mind if I smoke? May I have a I li- would prefer that you not, Senator. We're a little funny about fire here in the Alabama State Library. Of course, of course. Is there something specific you wanted, sir? About Ms. the Reed, budget for the coming year? Miss Reed, you've been here what? A little over a year? As often as we met last year at library funding meetings and as often as we might have passed each other at the coffee cart, I feel that I don't know you as well as I'd like to. Ours is a relationship of you asking for money for the libraries and me finding the money and giving the money generously. That's us doing our jobs, doing them well. But beyond that, who are we? What's the stuff inside us? Is this an official inquiry? Informal, informal. Separate from our upcoming hearing. Hearing? A meeting. The budget meeting. Separate from that, I wanted to talk with you about recent events. Get your perspective on them. Take your pulse. My pulse? Informal. Not state senator and state librarian. Alabamian to Alabamian. Talking about Alabama. I feel as if you're going to ask me if I know the state flower. This is not a test. Goldenrod. Correct. (laughs) Senator, I'm going to stop you there and admit to you that I have a very busy day ahead of me. Indeed, I'm going to be late for my 11 a.m. meeting. Can you put it off? Oh, it's a regular weekly meeting. Every Friday morning. One of the many meetings that is vital to the future of Alabama libraries. Now, I know you appreciate that. I'm the chair of the meeting. Hot in here, isn't it? Very hot for Easter time. Don't remember it being this hot this early. Tell me, Ms. Reed, do you prefer this pulse taken to be a private one or a public one? I think we should pick this up at our next budget meeting with our respective colleagues present. I'm curious if, if I might keep you one moment longer. There are some book titles that the state of Alabama is concerned about. Books that might be considered controversial. Controversial? Mm Mm-hmm. Gets the way we run things here. I see. The state was wondering if these books are being promoted by the library service. And I'm guessing you have a list of these A list? I do. Epitaph for Dixie. Segregation is a justified... Strange fruit. Uh, A dangerous woman? That last one. My mother-in-law, smart woman, told me she couldn't even finish it. It was so bad. And the list goes on. Well, I cannot tell you at the moment if these are in our collection, but I can certainly find out for you. Is that all, Senator? We will let you get to work, Ms. Reed, to your meeting on which hangs the future of our libraries. We understand. We agree. The future is important. In these clips that I've heard, I love the musicality of your language here. This this bit, this is a nice office, a nice big office. Nice to have a nice big office. It reminds me of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Brick saying, I can hop on one foot and if I fall, I can crawl. Those two words rhyme, of course. What you've done with this repetition of the word nice with big office 
we were talking about these courtroom dramas. It's this this Ben Matlock esque. Uh, oh, it's amazing what you can afford on a librarian's salary. I love the lyricism here of your language and also the undertones that you're that you're painting along the way. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I I, I worked hard to embed that in. Of course, of course, Senator Higgins funds the library, so he he funded that office. And he says, I can see you from out my window. He's right across the street in the Capitol. So, you know, he's using that. He's using his power against her, of course. And this makes for lots of opportunities for a director to say, well, is he going to sit in her chair? Because he's coming into her office. And where did it gives the artists a chance to figure out many, many, many different ways to interpret it. Does he sit in her chair? Does he sit across from her? Does he sit on her desk? I saw a production where he takes his hat off and puts it in the inbox, and she took it and put it in the outbox. <laughs> That's nice. You know, none of that is in the script, but it isn't. You know, it's 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 suggested in there. I'm looking forward to seeing what Oak Ridge Playhouse will do with it. And but thanks, yeah. I, again, I really heard this as singing on some level. There's a parallel story, a fictional story that I've added to the play that also sort of sings in its own way, and it's it's poetic and perfumey. So I worked hard to make it is a showy piece of writing. This play, it's it's um, thick and purple at times, and on purpose. My other plays aren't necessarily like this. Now that parallel story, I wouldn't know which to call the A story or the B story. Is uh, childhood friends Lily Whitfield and Joshua Moore some loaded names there, mm. their sort of love story that ultimately integrates into the, this story of the band book. Yeah. This historical event that I was so fascinated with was about white people kind of devouring each other and fighting over things that really ultimately had to do with black access, right? Libraries certainly were not integrated. Diners and restaurants were not integrated. So, you know, it was a bunch of white people talking about things. And I, I really uh, felt a responsibility and, and an interest in trying to figure out how to illustrate what regular folks were going through, black and white folks going through in their conversations and in their daily interactions. So I conjured this parallel story about childhood friends who grew up in a small town in Alabama. It's a real town. It's called Demopolis, uh, which is fraught with meaning. It's the people's city. It's a small town in western Alabama. It's where Senator Higgins is from, the real Senator Higgins. Um, the senator's name was Senator E.O. Eddins, just for the record. Um, but I conjured this, these childhood friends named Lily and Joshua. She's white and he's black, and they grew up in the same home together. His mother was a domestic in the house. They lived in a small cabin on the property that Lily views as the carriage house, <laughs> you know, but Joshua always knew it was just a dog trot, essentially slave quarters. Mm. We're talking, we're in the 1930s, but it is, you know, the allegory is, is that it's kind of, you know, there's no running water. Uh, still, they were dear childhood friends until an event separates them. And the event has to do with, of course, adolescence encroaching. So they meet in Montgomery in 1959, the same year that uh, the library controversy is happening, and they meet in a park outdoors on a bench that she, that only she can sit in for obvious reasons, and they just talk about their childhood, and they end up meeting throughout the year. He's there to do some civil rights work. He lives in Detroit now. He literally makes this pilgrimage to help rescue Alabama, and they happen to meet along the way, and they have these 
exchanges in which she ends up growing and he and his character ultimately is tested uh, just as the senator's character is tested and just as the librarian's character is tested the play is about tests of character in hard times how are you going to behave when there's an earthquake when there's a social earthquake and of course we're seeing that today even now five years after the premiere of the play so lily and joshua are the sort of perfume the love story you know i really wanted to write a love story i want to write a courtroom drama and a love story i want to have my cake and eat it too in this play where did you go to church back in our demopolis days Lone Pine Baptist. Lone Pine Baptist? I'm sure that little back road church is long gone by now. Once we moved here to Montgomery, Mama had her eyes set on Dexter Avenue Baptist, where the professional folk prayed. Martin Luther King's a preacher there now. Have you heard of Dr. Martin Luther King? I do love Easter. It's my favorite time, probably. It wants to rain, don't you think? Maybe. Yes. How is everything back in... The People City, since we last spoke. The People City, <laughs> Demopolis. You remember everything, just like me. Well, they installed a new fountain in Confederate Square. The goddess Persephone sits on top. Some church folks call it pagan. I think it's beautiful. And your husband, how's he? And how's Canada Dry, your old ginger ale business? It's Verner's Ginger Ale. I would have brought you a bottle had I known we'd be meeting again. Got your Bible there, I see. Yes, Mama's Bible. I guess you're still doing Bible study over at your Mama's church. Where is it, downtown? Like I said, down on Dexter Avenue, near the Capitol, near the Archive Building. Do you know it? I don't think so. Now, why are you walking downtown from here? It must be a mile or more. Didn't you drive down from Detroit? Where are you hiding your car? Last year, I parked it near the church, and someone smashed out my driver's side window with a brick. Who would do that? Who? Some people in Montgomery don't like the sight of a Negro behind the wheel of a brand new car. That's terrible. I believe a Negro has as much right as anyone to have a car. Well, thank you very much, Miss Lily. Now, I didn't mean it like that. I keep it parked at the house where I'm staying on the Negro side of the park. I pass this way to catch the high street bus downtown. What about you? Why don't you drive yourself down to the shopping district instead of sitting outside a hospital? Drive myself? Oh, I never got a license. Isn't that terrible? Daddy always had drivers for us. I have a driver here in Montgomery, too. Mr. Bjornsson. Sweet old man from Sweden, of all places. He carries me to the hospital in the morning and then back to the Jeff Davis, where I have an afternoon cocktail in the drum room before I call home and talk to my baby girl. (laughs) I have a routine. Well, the short answer is, I don't drive. Me, traveling on my own, it doesn't happen. I remember the day Pastor Wilkes drove Mama and me here to Montgomery. We passed by that sign that read, You are now leaving the people's city. And I thought, moving is a good thing. I feel the same way when I drive my Buick Roadmaster down here from Detroit with all the windows down, the radio on, the ginger ale in my hand, and the little green book on the seat next to me. I'm moving. Your green book? What's a green book? That's a book that tells colored folk where it's safe to eat and sleep when they're traveling. The green book. 
Never heard of it. Anyway, when I'm driving, I have this, I don't know, future feeling. It feels a little like love. I've never known that feeling. That future feeling, I mean. But love? Oh, I've known love, yes. God's love, a child's love, a mother's love. Naturally, yes. It really wants to rain, don't you think? You know, I know this place, this park. Daddy reminded me that we came here one summer for my cousin Tabitha Jane Haddock's wedding. Seemed like a storybook world to be married in. Beyond those gates, there was a tiny zoo and a man in a striped suit who sold sweet and salty popcorn <laughs> and a grand pavilion with all kinds of Alabama music. God seems to want me here again. I do believe it is more than coincidence that I am here. He put me in a place for my girlhood. He put Daddy across the street in the hospital. And he put you in my path. There's a temptation, I think, for playwrights to pivot to the screen, whether that's big screen or small screen. I knew this guy named Robert. He was a bartender. He worked at my local Tex-Mex restaurant in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Uh And he wrote the play Hand to God, Mm. which did quite well on Broadway. And then poof, he was off to a writer's room in Los Angeles, the end. I don't see that being your path. Kenneth Jones, (laughs) I see you as a man of the theater. I know that we're losing the immediacy of live theater at the moment. And, you know, I can sometimes remember where I am, which theater I'm in when, when I see a great film, but I more often remember where I am when I see a great play. There's just something about that live visceral experience of theater. Ken, I guess I mentioned the writer's room with the lure, at least in non-pandemic times, of writing for Netflix or writing for the silver screen to say, does that interest you as a path? And if not, how, in fact, can, does one make money as a playwright? There are many paths in this this career. Um, I started fairly late. So listen, I'm in my 50s. I'm not sure I'm uh, what television and Hollywood is interested in at the moment. I would love there to be a film version of Alabama Story. I think probably what would happen is the rights would be sold to a studio and I would get a first pass at writing the screenplay and they would bring collaborators on or they would their own screenwriter on. That's a choice every writer has to make. I've carved out a, a lot of great relationships in regional theater and equity theater. Um, I certainly have not been to Broadway or off-Broadway, but I've been in dozens of regional theaters. I love that place. I love that someone in Cincinnati gets to see this play or someone in you know, Salt Lake City or Austin. One makes money as a regional theater play, right, by simply having volume. 34 productions. I've got friends who have had 95 productions. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of productions of Oklahoma that are done every year. This is, you know, you're getting royalties for all of these things. In my track or in my groove, that is my world at the moment. Now, I would love for for Alabama sort to have an LA production and for someone to read about it and say, oh my God, this would make a fantastic movie. I've gotten a couple calls about 
whether the rights are available, that kind of petered out. I'm not inclined to go uh, writing producers or, or pitching the screenplay. I'm mostly focused on writing my plays. I've written five other plays. I've got a commission that I just got from Florida Studio Theater. So my plate is full. A lot of people go right from playwriting to television. Many of them are young writers, under 40, under 30, direct from dramatic writing master's degrees. Um, that is not that is not who I am. Can Alabama Story is going to receive its streaming premiere with the Oak Ridge Playhouse. I know this is something that is happening because it needs to happen, because we can't go to the theater right now. But that said, do you see streaming theater in the age of the internet? <laughs> do you see that as maybe a viable side hustle going forward? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that a playwright can make a royalty. Uh, <laughs> in the age of COVID, there's there's many you know there's many ways to get your work produced. Um, this year, I had three productions either canceled or postponed uh, due to COVID. I had three spring productions that were affected by it, and I thought, well, okay, how long is this going to go on? And of course, it 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 will probably you know we're probably going to be affected by this pandemic for at least the next two years in terms of public presentations of events, whether that's sports or symphony or theater. So um, theater started coming to me saying, can we do an outdoor socially distanced reading of your play? And I said, as long as the check clears. (laughs) No, I said, absolutely. And that's so just a different, it's just a different way to um, get your work seen. And, you know, with, with something like a stage reading, which is not what you're asking about, you know, that's, that's reader's theater, right? You're still mm-hmm. using your imagination and it's incredibly potent and you're teaching an audience that theater comes in many forms and everyone walks away from reader's theater saying, I felt like I was watching a play. It's like, yeah, it's a, they used to call them radio plays. So when this streaming opportunity came along, the artistic director of Oak Ridge Playhouse, Reggie Law, called me. He knew Karen Eisenberg, who was the first director and who was the major shepherd of my play in 2015. She's the artistic director at Pioneer Theatre Company in Utah. They know each other. And he said, I want to do your play and I'm trying to figure out how to do it. And as a socially distanced experience. And he pitched the idea of setting up two or three cameras in a theater, no audience, a fully produced production. Rehearsals would be socially distanced with masks. Everyone would be tested and checked out. And, you know, can we film it like a PBS Great Performances live action experience? And I said, that sounds amazing. And as you know from streaming, you have to buy a, it's pay-per-view essentially. You you buy a ticket and you have a day to watch it. And I'm, I can't wait. I have not seen what they're doing. I know I've been kept abreast of, of how rehearsals are going and have been in touch with Reggie with who's had questions. And with every production, I, I supply this 40-page dramaturgical packet that talks about my intentions. But I also encourage artists to go off on their own and figure out new ways to, to bring the work to light. So, yes, I think there's lots of opportunities. There's a Zoom reading of my play being done by Pacific Conservatory Theater in California. They're doing that in October. It's going to be talking heads on Zoom. But again, it's like radio theater. These are all ways to to get the play seen. And I'm, I'm thrilled by it. It's much needed in a in a 
desert of entertainment. My guess is that if this pandemic continues, theaters, regional theaters, Broadway theaters are going to be pretty aggressive about talking to unions and documenting shows on video, digitally, and making sure that they put a, a video document of a play in the can that's really well produced, much like we saw with Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. So if something happens, listen, if there's a super volcano that shuts down the country, we might be able to stream theater if there's enough funding for theaters to document their plays. Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. I know that Reggie is is seeking out other streaming options. And I think those aren't generally available to plays because it wasn't something that was in the toolkit before. That's right. By union rules, theaters can only have an archival video of a production, which means a camera at the back of a, at the back of the house recording a play, which is not something anyone should really see. It's a document for the future. I mean, having said that, I think those will get more sophisticated. Those archivals will get more sophisticated so that they can put them in the can for future presentation. There's a theater in Carmel, Indiana, that did a, a really great archival video of Alabama Story last fall, and they're actually going to stream that, I think, in January to coincide with Dr. King's birthday. So people are getting creative. Ken, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I wish you all the best. And whenever I'm able to travel again across the ocean from Berlin, I hope to catch up with you for either a socially distanced drink or a drink drink. I would love that. Thanks for supporting new work and supporting theater, Ben. I do what I can, Ken. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard Karen Brunner as Emily Wheelock-Reed, Oliver Hoig as Senator E.W. Higgins, Tyra Tucker-Hogg as Lily Whitfield, and Davion T. Brown as Joshua Moore in the Reggie Law-directed Oak Ridge Playhouse production of Alabama Story by Kenneth Jones. Coinciding with Band Books Week, Oak Ridge Playhouse will stream Alabama Story September 25th through October 4th. Visit orplayhouse.com to purchase tickets. Visit buykennethjones.com to learn more. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.